All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Praise God for air conditioning, right? <laughs> Amen with that, for that. So we are in week three of our mission and vision series. And actually, when, when we started this off uh, in week one, Pastor Mark had a really powerful statement, and I want to share it with you. We're going to actually quote it. Uh, he said, uh, the church in 2022 doesn't need to be known for its political stance. The church doesn't need to be known for its buildings. The church doesn't need to be known for amazing worship concerts or whatever your thing is. The church in 2022 needs to be known for one thing, that they are a Jesus-y people. That's what we want to be known for, that we reflect, that we exude the life and love of Jesus. Last week, we talked about what it means to become like Jesus, to, to be transformed by his power. And this week, we're going to jump into really the most practical part of this series, and that is do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. Now, when I think about that, that is a bold mission. That is, that is an amazing, that is a challenging calling to do what Jesus did. Think about it. Think about Jesus' ministry and his life. Jesus went around, and wherever he went, he drew large crowds of people. He preached the gospel from town to town. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Jesus was so popular and so famous at that time that he got invited to weddings and parties. At the same time, Jesus didn't own a home. He didn't have a lot of money. He never married or had a, had a family, had children. And eventually, he was arrested all of his friends deserted him. He was given a mockery of a trial. He was beaten and tortured, and he died like a criminal on a Roman cross. That's what Jesus did. So now when you think about that, when I think about preparing for this message, do what Jesus did, I kind of felt overwhelmed. I'm like, wow, this is a big thing. Do what Jesus did. So I did what any good pastor would do. I looked online. <laughs> if you don't know what to do, just start searching on Google, right? Yeah, so Jesus and I, um, uh, Practicing the Way, this is a great website. We have it up on, on the screen up here. And they list nine practices of doing what Jesus did. It was started by John Mark Comer. They're actually coming out with this whole life group series. And uh, they list nine things. So I want to read them to you. Nine things. The first one is eating and drinking, prayer, healing the sick, teaching the way, preaching the gospel, peacemaking, doing justice, prophesying, and the last one, standing up against religious and political corruption. I think they're still working on that one. That one might take a while. 
But yeah, wow, nine practices, nine practices to imitate and do what Jesus did. They boiled it down to nine practices. So does anyone want to hear me do a nine-point sermon this morning? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. So as I thought about this and I prayed about this, two questions came to mind. The first one was, what is the one characteristic that best uh, describes Jesus' ministry, that one thing that characterizes Jesus' ministry? And the second one is, how do we take that one thing put it into practice in our lives so that we can impact the world around us. That's what we want to do. So as I searched the scriptures, as I prayed, as I banged my head against the table, I, it finally came to me. And uh, the, the more I thought about it, it just became clearer and clearer. The one thing that best characterizes Jesus' ministry and his life is love. Love. Love is why Jesus created us. Love is why he came to this earth. Love is why he went and died on a cross for our sins. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That is Jesus' mission, to do love. And that's our mission too. So I want to take you to a, a passage that I think best describes our mission to do what Jesus did, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. If you haven't heard it, this is an amazing story. It's going to blow you away. It's so powerful. So if you have a Bible, uh, open up with me to Luke chapter 10. Verse 25, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. We also have free ones underneath your chairs. Luke 10, verse 25, it's kind of a long passage, so hang in there with me. But it's, it's a really powerful story. So I'm going to read it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now this word test could also mean to, uh, um, to trap so, so this, this person was, it could mean a trap that he's setting for Jesus. Now, keep in mind, when we say expert in the law, we're talking about a master of religious law, of the scriptures. So this isn't like a, um, a regular secular lawyer. This is more like a theologian than a lawyer. And he says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place 
and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Man, I love Jesus' parables, uh, especially this one. They're so amazing. Parables are unlike any other form of literature or writing. They're not just wise sayings, but because it's scripture, it just gives us a glimpse and a view into the divine realities of God like nothing else. And so I love the parables. And so we, we see in this passage the idea of doing everywhere. It said at the very beginning, teacher, the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? Do this and you will live. And then towards the end of the passage, this third one isn't, doesn't actually say do, but it's really implied by the verse and it's when the lawyer reluctantly asks, uh, replies, and says, the one who showed mercy, or the one doing mercy, and then finally what Jesus said, go and do likewise. Do, 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 right? And I was a pastor, so we're talking about doing, we're talking about works. And again, as a pastor, I really struggled to preach a message on works and that is so focused on doing. Why? Because I never want to be guilty of preaching or, or teaching or even implying legalism, right? Legalism is that you can earn your salvation or you're earning God's favor. And I never want to do that. So I think as other pastors, we kind of shy away from challenging people to actually go out and do what Jesus did for that very fact. And so, so I have never been to a legalistic church or super demanding church where they placed heavy burdens and things on people, but I know people who have. And they're deeply wounded because of that. And if that's you this morning, if that's your history, I hope and pray that you find healing in this message. So as we, as we talk about this, as we think about salvation, the number one passage that I think about, and I think a lot of people, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That is the go-to passage for describing what salvation is to people. So I want to be absolutely clear this morning. We 
are saved by grace. It's 100% a work of Christ on our behalf. We are saved by grace, and that is something that we hold very dear as Christians. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, all these other things are trying to earn God's favor, or trying to earn his love. And as Aaron said, he loves us. He loves us. We don't have to earn that. But what's interesting, though, is that when we talk about salvation, and I just find this interesting, is that we forget about the following verse. And if you really know your Bibles, the following verse, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved us by his grace, right? But he saved us for a purpose. He saved us to go out and do his work to fulfill his mission. That's why we're saved. It's not so that we can just sit around. We, have, we actually have a purpose. And that purpose is exciting. It's an amazing purpose. And it's truly like, man, I'm saved for something. I actually am supposed to do what you did, Jesus. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus did so many incredible things in his ministry. Let's look at a few. It says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what Jesus came to do. He came, he, he, could, he stepped down from the throne, and he could have just said, hey, I mean, came to be served. No, he came to serve. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10, and, and this one is what Jesus declared at the very beginning of his ministry when he was in the synagogue. He stood up in front of the crowds and he quoted from Isaiah, and this is a quote from Isaiah, and it's also quoted in Luke as well. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. Now, I can really get into that one. Uh, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you see, Jesus didn't stop there. He went out and he equipped disciples to go out and do those very things. That's what we are called to do. That's not just Jesus' mission. We're his disciples. We're supposed to imitate his life. So that's what God has called us to do. Jesus sent his son, sent us to do those same things. And if we do those things here in Chino, then people will know that we're a Jesus-y people. Amen? Amen. So then the big question is, how do we do this? How do we do this, Dan? How can, can we really make a difference in the world? You know, I believe that the last two years, two and a half years, have actually given us a profound opportunity to reach the world. People, like we, like we showed in the alphabet video, people are more hungry than ever in, in recent decades to hear, um, 
to hear the gospel. They're more open. They're asking those questions again. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Is, who is Jesus? Does God really exist? Can I really know him? Those are the kinds of questions people are asking now. And so this is an amazing opportunity. And I think one of the most, um, I would say, the most neglected or the, one of the ways that we really haven't taken advantage of this is through something called radical, ordinary hospitality. Radical, ordinary hospitality. What is that? I know it sounds crazy, but it simply means to eat and drink with people who don't know Jesus. To eat and drink with people who don't know Jesus. To share a meal with them. Now, in the 2022, that looks like maybe going to a restaurant or having coffee with someone. But honestly, the best way to do it, the most effective way that, that, that you can really practice this is in your home, at your dinner table, or in your backyard. It's powerful, especially, and it really has to be done with genuine love. This was, this was how Jesus did ministry. Tim Chester describes Jesus' plan for reaching the lost in his book titled, a meal with Jesus. And he said, his mission strategy, speaking of Jesus, was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. That's how Jesus did discipleship. That's how he did evangelism over a meal with people who didn't know Jesus, the outcasts, the lost. And how did the religious people, what did they think of Jesus when he did that? They hated him for it. They despised him. They called him names. They mocked him. They said that he was breaking the law. They said things like, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they mocked him because he wasn't hanging around with the right people. And he thought, they thought, he's having too much fun. <laughs> Is, what, are we supposed to be boring as Christians? Just stiff and rigid and like, no, that's not what God has called us to do. Man, we should have the best parties as Christians, right? I don't mean getting hammered or anything like that, but I do mean, <laughs> I'm glad you thought that was funny. <laughs> I was trying to be serious. Well, that's cool. That's cool. We should. We should have the best gatherings, the best barbecues, the best hangouts than the world. The scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and other um, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus practiced radical, ordinary hospitality. And I think we have a great opportunity to do that as well. So looking back at our passage, in verse 26, Jesus asked the lawyer to summarize what was written in the law. Now in those days, the the 
the rabbis and the, the teachers of the law, they, they boiled the, the, all of the commands down to two, to love, really, to two kinds. Love God and love your neighbor. And the Old Testament was filled with commands, tons of things that they had to abide by, civil, moral, and ceremonial laws. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. And again, they had to, to do these things. This wasn't just your Sunday church thing for them. The scriptures were woven into every aspect of their lives. It was part of their culture and their society. And so they boiled it down to two things. And the lawyer's question was really much bigger when he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was really asking a much bigger question, kind of like what we're asking today. And his question essentially was, how do I fulfill all God's desires for me so that I can become fully alive? That was his question. How can I do all that God wants for me so that I can be and live fully human? I want to be that, all that God wants. You know, Shelly and I, we, uh, we lived in Seattle for a couple of years. Uh, we always call that the experiment. <laughs> yeah, well, you see where we live now. <laughs> um, so when we lived there, I hated it, right? It rains every day, and it doesn't just rain. It's cold all the time for 10 months. It stinks. And so it, it's terrible. I'm serious. It's terrible. And, and it get, you get depressed and you get moody and just kind of just agitated about life because you're always just like this heavy, dreary life. And, and when that happens, people can actually develop a condition called sunlight deficiency. Get this sunlight deficiency it's real it's real and so doctors will prescribe uv light bulbs so that you can put them in your house so that you can get some more sunlight and vitamin d and lots of prozac and things like that but <laughs> right what whatever works is is kind of the thing for seattle but you know what no matter how many uv bulbs you have in your your house how many vitamin D's, how much Prozac you take, there is no substitute for real sunlight. There's no substitute for it. Even if, I mean, man, when, it would, when the sun would come out and kind of just break through the clouds, we, people would actually go out and you would just see them standing there like this. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, I got some sun. Then, boom. <laughs> but it's no, it's no substitute for the real thing. And there's no substitute for real love. That's what we're talking about. There's no substitute for real love. There's lots of imitations, lots of substitutes, lots of fake love out there. And even those things, they can satisfy you for a little bit of time, take away um, the, the distractions, numb the pain, get you um, uh, focused on other things. But again, Nothing is like the real thing. And what's interesting is that we are so wired for, hardwired for love. We are so built for love. When we have it, we thrive. 
We just feel like we're on top of the world, like, like it's, we are just at our best when we have love in our lives. But when we don't, we feel empty. We feel like life's falling apart. We feel like there's something broken in the universe when we don't have love. And it's sad. It really is. And I think the church has actually a love deficiency. Has a love deficiency. That's the message Jesus is teaching. In the story that we read about the Good Samaritan, we're going to get a little bit more into it. We're not the Good Samaritan in this passage. We are the lawyer. Why? Because none of us, like the lawyer, loves perfectly. None of us has perfect love. That's what Jesus is talking about. Does any of us love God with really, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, all of our strength? No, we don't. Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? No. I love my wife deeply. I love my son. But I don't love them perfectly. And I get irritated by them. I, I'm short, I have you know, short patience sometimes with them. I'm not always doing the things that are best for them. I'm self-centered. And so what, the, what Jesus is talking about here, and this is the key verse in verse 29. It says that the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? And justify, the word justify, we don't use it very often, but it's a legal term. And it means to, to prove, to prove that in right standing or to prove valid. That's what justify means, to prove in right standing or valid. So let's, for example, let's say that um, for Christmas this year, I took my family to Maui. And to pay for it, I used my church credit card, okay? Kelly's out there freaking out, some of the people on the board. Let's say I used, I used, I paid for my entire vacation, and, and we just lived it up, and I came back. Would I be able to justify my expenses? No, I wouldn't. And that's what the lawyer is finding out when Jesus is telling the story. He's finding out that he thinks he really loves God, and he thinks he really loves his neighbor. But as Jesus tells this story, and he gets kind of to the end, really to the big question, he finds out he doesn't really love his neighbor. The good Samaritan proves to the lawyer that he doesn't love his neighbor. He needs someone to justify him because he can't justify himself. Romans 5, 8 through 9. Jesus is our justifier. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Amen? Jesus is our ju justifier. If we're trying to justify ourselves, if we're self-justifiers, we're not going to make it. So before we dive deeper into this story, I want to provide a little bit more background about the uh, uh, kind of the, 
the historical part, the characters and all of that. So Jews and Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. Think Dodgers, Giants, but way worse than that, okay? <laughs> way worse than that. It's like everybody else and Raiders, okay? It's just, <laughs> just hatred all around, all around. In fact, Jews would, would, uh, they would thank God every morning when they got up. They would pray and they would just thank God. Thank you that you didn't make me a Samaritan. No, I'm serious. They would use it, and you can go look this up too. They, used, they insulted Jesus one time in Scripture by, using, by calling him a Samaritan. Because Samaritans were half-breeds. They were, they were people who, were, who got lost in the exile, and they, were, they ended up being traitors. And so the Jews hated them for it. And then there was also this road that Jesus talked about from Jerusalem to Jericho. What was that road all about? Well, that road stretches 17 miles, and it's filled with all kinds of caves and hiding places along the way. And so what bandits, robbers, and thieves would do is they would hide in there just waiting for innocent victims so that they could pounce on them, beat them, and take all their stuff. So that's what's going on in this passage. And, 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 and what is really um, powerful about this, what really drives this thing home, is that this, this, this whole thing would have been so offensive to the lawyer. See, it, this is the, the wake-up call to him. That's what makes it so powerful, is that it is offensive to him. So the priests and the Levites, though, in this story, they're the religious elites. They're the ones that everyone should look up to. They're the ones doing all the right things. And Tim Keller goes through, and he does a great job of retelling this story in a dramatic way. Let me read it to you. Now, I want you to picture yourselves in this story. Imagine you're there. You're not one of these, these people that's mentioned, but you're kind of like an innocent bystander, and you're watching this whole thing. So imagine that. Imagine yourself. You're scared. You're frightened. The priest and the Levite went by because they said, oh, the robbers are there. This is, this is the kind of place where people are always getting beaten up and robbed. So on they ran. They weren't sure that they could save this man anyways. It looked like he was dead. If I stop, they said, here, I may get robbed too. The good Samaritan, on the other hand, takes his life into his own hands and he stops. Next, he gives the most concrete kind of care, medical treatment. He gets his hands dirty. He destroys his schedule of whatever he was going to do. He takes this man to an inn, and he puts up two silver coins, which were basically two months' rent. He says to the innkeeper, I will pay an extra, whatever extra when I come back. What a powerful story. And my question to you is, what stands out most to you about this Good Samaritan? What is God, what is the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart this morning about this, this message and this, this powerful story that Jesus is telling? Was it the, the generosity of the Samaritan? You know, he gave two months' rent. That's like, um, in the preserve, that's like $8,000. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. 
What, what stands out to you? Was it his courage? How he risked his life? What stands out to you? Was it um, how generous he was with his time? He didn't care about his schedule? Or how about his compassion? Just really took care of this, this man. And finally, he did it all for his enemy. That's why it's so powerful. What if we really loved like this, church? What if we really loved people like Jesus? Could you imagine how great of an impact we could have? And I'm saying this to myself. What if Dan Driscoll really loved his neighbors like Jesus? You know, let's say we had a million dollars right now and you had to make a bet. Which one would you bet would have more of a, a greater impact on society? Love or politics? Which one? I'm serious. I'm serious about this. This is, this is real life. This is the life that we are just surrounded by every day. Which one? Love or politics? All, and I'm so convinced that we can actually change the world around us if we would just love our neighbors. That's all. If everybody, imagine there's millions of Christians, there's a billion Christians, but there's at least millions and millions of them in the US. If we just loved our neighbors, we would change the whole nation. We would change the nation if we just loved our neighbors. We don't have to worry about changing the world. We just have to worry about and be concerned and love the people that God put around us. This is so powerful. I don't think we know how powerful love is. You see, I have a love deficiency. I've had one for a while, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And as I kind of wrap this thing up this morning, I want to share with you a couple of stories that I think best represent the Good Samaritan. And these are people I know, and there's, there's other stories out there I know that are, that are equally as powerful, but these are two that really stand out to me. And one of them is Trisha Bosch. Trisha Bosch is, if you don't know her, she's one of our shepherding elders. So she's an elder at church here. And God has given her such a huge heart of compassion and, and, and to serve people. And Trisha was in the middle of Rooted one, one year, because she's been through it like three times. So she was in the middle of Rooted and there was an exercise where the, the how to engage it was to, to pray and ask God how you could better serve him. And Trisha prayed, and she asked God, and she said, God, how can I serve you better? I have such a heart for this. And the very next day, she saw on a news program, on a morning show, that there was a desperate need for foster parents. And she knew right then and there what God was calling her to do. And foster parenting is, when I think about it, man, I, I would love to be a foster parent, but man, that is a big call. It is. 
And so when I think about the Good Samaritan, I think about Trisha and what she did. You know, Trisha, she's, she could easily have said, I already, I've already raised three kids. My kids are grown. I have grandkids now. And I, I really need to spend time with them. And my husband's busy at work. And so she, she prayed and she went to her husband, Brad, because it has to be a team thing, right? It's not just something Trisha can do. Hey, I brought some kids home. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, God put it on Brad's heart too. And he said, I'm all in. And so now they're loving and caring for two young boys, eight and 10. And these boys, yeah. They're growing up in a home filled with God's love and his grace. And the second person is Warren Hino. Warren, you might have seen him up here. He's preached up here before a few times. And Warren is, man, I love Warren. He's such a good friend. I, if you've never met Warren, he's just, he, he has so much, he's so relaxed. And he has so much joy. And it's just contagious. And you just want to be around Warren. And so Warren was going through kind of a rough time in his business. This was still when COVID was still just, you know, on the world, and, and he wrote down in his journal on April 24th, 2021, and he wrote three things down in his journal. And these three things were love people, be hospitable, invite people over for cigars. <laughs> All right. Love people, be hospitable, invite people over for cigars. And guess what? Warren did that. Warren invited people over. He put it on a Facebook page at the Chino Preserve. Uh, and that's, that's what happened out of that. A whole group of us, like 20 people showed up. And what's interesting about this story is that these weren't all people from the bridge, which could easily have happened. They were people from his work, there were people from the neighborhood in the preserve that didn't even go to this church. And some of those people are attending and are just so committed to the bridge right now. And one, one, one couple in particular, um, uh, one of the guys that showed up was Ben. I mean, not Ben. He showed up, which uh, he goes here now. He plays the bass. He's involved in youth ministry. So that was awesome. But uh, Ed Bernal. You saw him in the Alpha video, Ed Bernal. He wasn't even following Jesus. He wasn't a Christian. And his wife saw this on the Facebook page, The Preserve, and says, oh, you ought to go to that. So he went to it. And then Warren did a devotion, and he just loved the people around us, and he ended up coming to the bridge, him and Vanessa, his wife. They went through Alpha. They went through Rooted. They became partners, and I got a chance to baptize them a few months ago. Church, that's the power of radical, ordinary hospitality, of doing what Jesus did, of loving your neighbors. And so as I close right now, I want to give you some practical ways to love your neighbors. And the first one is not to do something. It's to stop doing something. And that is to stop 
consuming political content. Stop. I, I, I've recently just kind of given up like 98% of it. And I honestly feel so much more joy in my life because of it. Social media, Facebook, YouTube, it's all out there. Cable news networks, all they are is causing division, hatred. They're, they're, they're bringing anxiety and fear. And, and, and now we're, we're just like, we're angry people. And it hardens your heart. It makes you cold against other people. So please, stop that. The next one, take a genuine interest in the lives of those around you, people you go to work with, your neighbors, people that, you're in your, that work out at your gym, wherever it's at, the people that are um, part of your kids' sports programs, take a genuine interest, and that's key. It has to be genuine in those people's lives. Become friends with them. Get to know them. And the second one, or the third one, kind of builds on the, that one, is start eating and drinking with people. Get people, um, yeah, gather people to, um, to eat and drink, to barbecue, to, to have parties. Get together with people. Go out to coffee and dinner with them. Four, join us on Saturday to feed the poor at Bridge to You. We go out once a month on the, the first Saturday of the month, and we go out to Pomona, and we minister to the poor. And I'll tell you, it does something to your heart. Because we don't just feed people. We pray over them. We grab, hug them. We introduce ourselves. We shake their hands. We, we, we give them love. And it changes you. And it gives you more compassion. And they need that. They need it. And fifth, invite someone you know to Alpha or Rooted. It'll change your lives.